Our Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of gathering, albeit in somewhat unusual circumstances again. We thank you for the favor that you have bestowed on us through our governmental authorities so that over the last eight months we have been able to regather in normal normal kind of worship. That is a gift from your hand through the common grace of governmental authorities over us. We thank you. We thank you that even while we have benevolent authorities over us where we live, that you are sovereign over them and over all other authorities as well. That we don't need to find our boasting in governments. We don't need to find our boasting or our hope in our finances or our position. We don't need to find our boasting in our military strength or any other kind of strength. But we will boast simply in you. And in you, we have all that we need. Would you guide us now, our Father, as we look at the scriptures and as we are reminded of your sufficiency, your power, your authority over all men in all places, in all ways. And would you make us to be the kind of people who are content with the authorities you have given over us. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. A number of years ago, U.S. Representative Jack Metcalf from Washington State revealed that the U.S. Forestry Service and a Washington State agency planned to spend $18,000 painting some rocks along the roadway in the Cascade Mountains. It seems that during a construction project in the Cascades that some rocks were exposed that previously hadn't been exposed And that exposure showed rocks that were, quote unquote, new. And they were not weathering sufficiently quickly enough that that Metcalf and some of his constituents thought that people needed to have a more natural look of what nature looked like and they would help it by painting the rocks that were around them. Uh, The project, wisely, was postponed a month later. Meanwhile, in North Carolina... Some city folk were complaining a number of years ago about some of the, shall we say, earthy smells that were coming from the country. And in light of that, the North Carolina government set aside $170,000 to determine why pig farms smell so bad. Apparently, the natural sense that the people in Washington wanted, the people in North Carolina didn't want. Maybe the two need to get together. The federal government also has its fair share of miscues. The Consumer Safety Commission debated for about five years what to do with the five-gallon buckets that are so common in a number of different industries. Apparently, they were concerned about the danger that they were for children, that someone might leave a, a bucket out, that the bucket would fill with water, perhaps some rainwater, and that a toddler could come along and drowned in the five-gallon bucket. The recommendation of the commission was that manufacturers redesign buckets, five-gallon buckets, so that they wouldn't be a drowning hazard for toddlers. Eventually, though, they simply decided to require manufacturers to put a drowning warning on all five-gallon buckets. All those stories make me appreciate the story of the man who 
went to Washington, D.C. a number of years ago. He was going to speak at the Pentagon at an event and wasn't sure about the way to get there. And he found himself on a roadway that had a loop that kept taking him back across the Potomac River. Finally, in exasperation, he spotted a jogger and asked the jogger the question, which side is the Pentagon on? And without missing a stride, the, pent- the, uh, the um, jogger shouted back at the man, I think they're on our side. And he kept on going. Sometimes you have to wonder, on whose side is the government? And that question seems to be especially appropriate in this day and at this time, and especially so for believers. What is the role of government? And what should we think about government? And how should we relate to government? And how should we respond to government? Those are the questions that we'll be examining together from Romans chapter 13 for at least two and maybe three or four weeks. What should we expect from our leaders? What does God expect from our leaders? Here's the theme of the message this morning from Romans chapter 13. Every government is established by God to carry out his purposes. Every government is established by God to carry out his purposes. There is no government ever anywhere that is not ruled by, controlled by, and underneath the sovereign hand of God. He is over every governmental authority, and every governmental authority carries out his purposes alone. There is no one that acts independently of his purposes. All governments carry out God's purposes only. And in these verses, Paul will affirm three realities about the position and role of the government and governmental leaders. Now, as we move into Romans chapter 13, and isn't it a delight to be back in Romans? It's been since November since we've looked at Romans And if you go back to November and remember where we were in chapter 12, it just seems almost as if this is this is an unusual kind of thing for the apostle to talk about. Why does he insert the comments he does here about government? He spent the first 11 chapters of the book talking about our salvation and sanctification and our position in Christ and all of the glories and and effects of our salvation And then moving from that, in chapter 12, he talks about uh, the gifting of, of Christ that comes through the Holy Spirit because of our salvation and relationships in the body that come to us because of Jesus Christ and how we relate to those who love, who love us and how we relate to those who are in the world. And then in the middle of that conversation, and he will soon move back to that, in the middle of this chapter, he'll talk about the debt of love that we owe to all men. Chapter 14, he'll talk about liberty kinds of issues. It just seems incongruous that he's talking about government. Why does he insert this conversation here? Well, it's good for us to remember from chapter 12 that he has talked to us about the reality of a transformed life, that because of what we are in Christ, our lives should be transformed, our minds should be renewed. And this isn't just um, a a superficial idea. This isn't, this isn't a theoretical idea that the apostle Paul has. It, 
It is an idea that he has for us to be transformed that is rooted in the realities of where we live every single day of our lives. And one of the things that is a reality in our lives is that we have to think about our relationship to government and to those who are in authority over us. And the apostle would have us think about that. And so from that standpoint, it is natural that he talks about having a renewed mind as it relates to the government. And remember as well that in chapter 12, starting in verse 14, he's talking to us about those who persecute us. And certainly he is talking about those who might be inside the body who seem to be persecuting us and against us. But even beyond that, he's also talking about those who are outside the body of Christ, who are persecuting us, who are against us. And isn't it true that at times government, if not in the United States, certainly in other countries, government is very often opposed to people and particularly opposed to believers. How, how should we think about that? That certainly was the case with the Apostle Paul as he related to the Roman government. That was certainly was the situation with Jesus and the disciples. That was by and large the situation for Israel in all of its history that they were opposed by governmental authorities and they were opposed by other nations. How how should we think about those things and what should we think that God is doing? And so today's question for us is what is government's role and what does God expect of government and its leaders? Again, the theme of this passage, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, is that every government is established by God to carry out his purposes. And we're talking about three realities that flow from that. The first reality that I want us to notice, and we're going to jump around this passage just to capture themes that are tied together. The first reality that we want to find here is that all government is God's government. All government is God's government. That's in verses one and four. And the first thing that the apostle will say about this truth is that God has established every government. God has established every government. That's very clear starting in verse 1. Notice the all-inclusive language that the apostle uses in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governmental authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those which exist are established by God. Every person, no authority, those which exist. And all of those terms are all-inclusive terms. He would have us to understand that there are no exceptions in any of those terms. And what I would like you to notice particularly is the latter two of those terms. Notice he says there is, in the middle of the verse, no authority except from God. This means that God is sovereign over both governments and governors. That is, he is, a, he is the authority. God is sovereign over all governmental positions, all governmental uh, manifestations, all governments, and he is sovereign over every individual within that government, every person, every individual in every governmental entity. There is no one who is in authority and there is no government in authority except that God has given that authority to that government, to that entity, and to the one who is within that entity. 
From our perspective, it sometimes appears that governments and leaders gain their authority through popular elections or through appointments or through heredity, through heredity or perhaps even through force. But the commentator Douglas Moo rightly has noted, behind every such process is the hand of God. No matter how a government came into existence, no matter how someone within that government got to his or her position, God was behind the process. This is repeatedly taught and affirmed in scriptures. We know that from Nebuchadnezzar's story. It's told so clearly in the opening chapters of the book of Daniel. But listen even to what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 27, 5 and 6. God says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm. And I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. So even in Jeremiah, God, through the prophet, affirms that Nebuchadnezzar has all of his position, all of his authority, every everything he possesses by God's own hand. And notice, and this is significant for what we'll see in a moment in Romans, notice that he also says that Nebuchadnezzar is his servant. That Nebuchadnezzar does not act on his own, but he only carries out the responsibilities and the deeds that God has sovereignly decreed for him. Listen to what the Lord says to David as David takes leadership and authority over the nation of Israel. Second Samuel 12, 8. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care so that you would take care of them. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. In other words, God has given everything that David has as a governmental authority, as the king of the nation of Israel and Judah. God alone is the one who has given those things to David. Listen to what Jehoshaphat prays, Second Chronicles chapter 20. O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. So Jehoshaphat reveals again that God is sovereign, God is authoritative, God is king. There is, there is no one that acts against his will, and that includes all governmental entities and all governing officials. From these and a host of other verses, we understand that godly And good leaders are established by God. But it also reminds us that even wicked and evil leaders are appointed by God to carry out his purposes, to accomplish his plans. And they are sovereign, quote unquote, over their nations only as much as God has granted sovereignty to them. He alone is sovereign over every country and every leader, every official in every country. And as if that is not enough, notice what the apostle says at the end of the verse, 
and those which exist are established by God. Paul tells the Romans that every current form of government has its origin in God. If there is a government that is in existence, notice what he says, that which exists is established by God. If it's in existence, God has established it. And Paul is writing this to the Roman church to remind them the Roman government that is over you, which was wicked and evil in many ways. And we'll look at some of that next time we're together thinking about this passage. Uh, that government is in existence because God has placed it in existence. God has assigned and appointed every government at every time in history. He has established and he has set every governmental authority into position and he has given them their position and the extent and the magnitude of their influence according to what he alone has decreed for them. This does not mean that every government is God-blessed in the sense that they are good, but it does mean that just as God sovereignly placed Nebuchadnezzar into leadership for particular purposes over Babylon, so he places every government and every ruler in every place to accomplish his purposes. And brothers and sisters, this must be a great confidence and great comfort to us because there are wicked rulers, there are evil governments, there are selfish individuals within those governments. And we know that they are there solely by the decree, the purpose, the plan of God. No government. No ruler, no authority, no official at any city hall, no county commissioner, no sheriff or sheriff's deputy or police officer is in that position except by the explicit, sovereign plan, purpose, intention of God. There is no government, there is no governmental authority who is there by accident. God is over them all. God has decreed them all to be where they are for his divine purposes. That leads us to another sub-point under this first um, understanding of what governments are, and that is in verse 4. Every government is God's servant. Every government is God's servant. Skip down to verse 4. And notice that twice in verse 4 and then in verse 6, the apostle says that governments and governmental authorities are servants of God. He uses that term twice in verse 4. And ministers of God, that's the term that he uses in verse 6. Let me just make a couple of observations about what Paul is saying in verse 4. Notice verse 4, he says, for it is a minister of God in in the Greek, that that um, clause is actually twisted around in a very different kind of order. And the first word in that phrase is of God. Every governmental authority is of God. Of God. For it is a minister to you for good. It is of God. It is 
It is Paul's way to emphasize that government, again, belongs to God and no one else. And the government and the governmental leader is put in that place not to do his bidding and his desires, but to fulfill the task and the bidding of the Lord. Notice that he also calls the rulers and even the government entities themselves a minister for God and a servant of God. The word minister is often used in the context of a waiter serving a table. His task is simple. His task is lowly. And Paul notes that that ministry and that service is to you. The ruler and the government both exist to serve the people of the nation. The government and the governmental leaders are not there to serve themselves and to exalt themselves. And Paul uses the singular pronoun you. So notice he says, and it is a minister of God to you. That's not the word y'all, plural. It's the word you, singular. That is the individual. The government is there to serve the individual personally, privately. They are to be personally involved with their people. They are to serve the people of their nation, their town, their county individually to take personal attention in them. But that phrase, to you, also means that government is appointed by God for you. That is, God is accomplishing something particular in you personally through that government. So when he says it is a minister of God to you, He would have us to understand that the government that God has given us, he has given us for us. My governmental authorities over me are for me to accomplish particular purposes and agendas in my personal life. Whatever government you and I have is for our personal and even our individual benefit. Whether they realize it or not, And whether they acknowledge it or not, every ruler in every government is God's servant doing God's work, accomplishing God's purposes. Someone has rightly noted, even Nero was God's minister in Rome. He's right. That doesn't mean that every government or every governmental leader everywhere is righteous. We know they are not. But they are governments. And no matter how unrighteous they are, there is still some rule and there is some authority that is governing, that is protecting, that is providing a sense of morality, that is rewarding, we'll see this in a moment, what is good and punishing that which is evil. So even despotic, even evil governments have some form of morality that is good for Uh, the people that are underneath them and serve as some measure of protection. For without government, uh, there's just open anarchy and, and there's, there's free reign for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. Remember the story, the Lord of the Flies and what happens when no one is in authority and there is no leadership. So even in the most wicked of governments, there is still some good that they accomplish in protecting their people. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says in his outstanding book, Trusting God. The so-called sovereign nations of the world are not truly sovereign. They are nothing more than instruments in the hand of God to accomplish his will. 
sometimes to protect his people, sometimes to open doors for advancement of the gospel, and sometimes to be his instrument of judgment against ungodliness. As God looks down upon the nations that accomplish his purpose, even while rebelling against him, he sees them as nothing more than his instruments. So the first reality as we think about government, is that all government is God's government. All governors live underneath the control, the dominion, the authority, the sovereignty of God. All government is God's government. There's a second reality that I want us to notice in these verses, and that's scattered through verses 3 to three through 6, and that is what governments are to do. What governments are to do. And the first thing that the apostle tells us that the governments are to do is in verse 3, that government restrains evil. So what should a government do for us? The first thing he tells us in verse 3 is that a government should restrain evil. For rulers, notice what he says, verse 3, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. And do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. One of the primary roles of government is to restrain evil. So Paul says they're not there for fear for those who are doing good things, but they are there for fear for those who are doing evil things. That is, God has designed government to, to not to restrain good works, but to promote good works and to restrain evil works. So under government, as God has designed it, no man should ever be fearful of doing something that is good and righteous. So if an individual is gracious and kind and submissive and honorable, then he should never have to fear what the government might do to him. He ought to live in peace and safety and lack of fear and lack of anxiousness and rest in confidence that the government will fulfill its God-given role in his life and do only what is good for him. But if he is evil, that is different. When Paul says that the government exists but for evil, the middle of verse 3, he means that rulers are a cause for fear for those who do things that are evil. When people do things that are immoral and socially reprehensible and grossly sinful, they should be terrified of the actions of the government against them. When when people talk about laws and the consequences that come from laws and prison, they will all they will often say, you'll hear this often in the culture, it's not a deterrent And it's not supposed to be. Yes, brothers and sisters, it is supposed to be a deterrent. And it is supposed to be punitive. And its primary goal, the government, in disciplining those who are evil, is not to rehabilitate. Their primary goal is, from this passage, to carry out just retribution. If government isn't a deterrent, if laws aren't aren't a deterrent, if penalties aren't a deterrent for breaking the law, then the law is not strong enough. The law is designed to give fear to those who break the law. And if, if fear isn't 
isn't a result of those who do evil, then the law is not what it should be. Why is this important? Because a society cannot exist without restraints. If murder and fraud and rape and theft and dishonesty are left unchecked, then anarchy will rule and culture will implode. You may be familiar with H.G. Wells' book, The Invisible Man. It's something of a science fiction classic, and it asks the question, what will a man do if he is invisible, and what can happen if, if someone is invisible and has the ability to cloak themselves from visibility of others? But I think far more interesting than a a scientific experiment, I think the book is far more interesting from a social experiment. What will men do if they are invisible and think they can act with impunity? Where will their character or where will their lack of character take them? And what H.G. Wells points out in that book is that man's heart is tempted towards moving away from God, though he doesn't use that term. They're tempted to move away from God and into those things that are fleshly, wicked, and evil, and anarchy. Government is designed by God to suppress those things. And if government is immoral, then every man will do what is right in his own eyes, and the culture will be destroyed. We see that repeatedly in the nation of Israel and its history. Says Wayne Grudem, if there is no governmental authority to stop evil people, evil simply increases. So there should be fear among those who do what is wrong when they are faced with governmental entities and governors. And again, even when governments are imperfect, even grossly imperfect, there is virtually always some basis of moral standard that is protected by the government and and benefits the people, and that is the very way that God has designed it. So the government is given to people to restrain evil. But the government also does something else. Notice this in the middle of verse 3. What is the government to do? The government is to restrain evil, and then also the government is to promote good. The government is to promote good. So Paul takes that that prohibition or that negative from the beginning of verse 3, and now he turns it and he states it in a positive sense. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good and you will have praise from the same. And this gives us a, another requirement of the government. The requirement of the government is that it is designed to promote and reward the things that are right and good. The praise that is offered by government is an affirmation, it's an admiration, it's an, it's an approval, it's a recognition of the kinds of things that are consistent with moral goodness and godliness. Government should not only be opposed to, excuse me, government should not be opposed to righteous actions, but instead it should be promoting, encouraging, affirming, and holding up those kinds of actions that are consistent with righteousness and truth as it is as it is revealed in the scriptures. The apostle Peter makes this very same point in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he says in verses 13 and 14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution 
whether to a king as one in authority or to governors, listen to this, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. So Peter affirms the very same thing that the Apostle Paul has said. The government is there to oppose those who are unrighteous, to punish evil and wicked doers, and to praise and affirm and build up those who are doing things that are right. One way that the government promotes that is to defend the weak and the defenseless. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 82. Psalm 82, start in verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. In other words, the psalmist is reminding us that God stands in judgments of the rulers. He is sovereign over them. He evaluates them. He judges them. And on what basis will he judge them? Notice verses 2 to 4. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. In other words, the governmental authorities are to care for those who are weakest, who are most at risk, who are most in danger. The government is to provide protection, and God stands in evaluation over them. How are you doing at that task of defending the defenseless? Former Vice President of the United States, Hubert Humphrey, interestingly enough, given his political party and what they stand for today, Hubert Humphrey affirmed this very truth when he said this, and I quote, The moral test of government is how it treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the aged, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. It almost sounds like Humphrey had read, understood, and believed what the psalmist said in Psalm 82, that government exists to protect those who are unable to protect themselves. An application of this truth that the government should affirm those who do what is good is the government should reward obedience, but also the government should enact laws and do things for its people that are conducive to to people living righteous kind of lifestyles so that they're enticed to do that which is good. And on many levels, our government does that very kind of thing. So it builds parks and playgrounds to encourage physical health and, and to promote a family and friend interactions. It gives tax breaks to churches because it understands the benefit that comes from churches within the culture. It gives tax breaks to families with children in order to help them care for their children. And in the state of Texas, over the last nine to 12 months, we have found particularly the benefit of of living in this state where a a governor and a government looks favorably on churches and and makes it easy for us uh, to gather for worship under COVID and places very few restrictions on us. It's doing that so that it can promote the good and welfare of the culture. So government 
What does a government do? A government is designed to restrain evil. A government is designed to promote good. A government is also, in verse 4, God's temporal avenger of evil. Government is God's temporal avenger of evil. Notice what he says, verse 4, because it, the government, and those who are in authority within that government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God. And here he points to a particular kind of ministry that it carries out on behalf of God. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. If someone does evil, then the government is God's avenger. It is the one who punishes. And Paul is particularly graphic here. He says, notice the middle of the verse, it bears the sword. What was the sword designed to do? In this context, it's designed to put to death. Today, we might say it bears the pistol or it bears the electric chair or it bears the lethal syringe. The government is given the responsibility of protecting the people to the point of using deadly force against evil. The point is that there is to be a vengeance. There is to be an accounting of that which is wrong. Now, we understand from chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, uh, verses 18 to 21 particularly, that God is the one who avenges evil ultimately, that he is the one who avenges all wickedness in heaven or hell at the end of time for all time. But in the intermediary stage before God carries out final wrath, final judgment against sin and evil, we understand that the government is given to carry out wrath, judgment, vengeance against evil in a temporal sense until God carries out the final vengeance against evil. There is such a thing as just retribution. And that is the very point of of our laws, is that there is to be a just pouring out of retribution to those who violate the laws as they have been written. Government is the avenger of injustice. In other words, one way that the Lord takes care of injustice is by mediating his wrath through the just actions of the government against evil and against sin. And when the government avenges evil, it's not merely and it's it's not an eternal act. We understand that, but it is a temporal act in which God reminds us that he has not forgotten what is right, what is wrong. He is not apathetic about what is wrong, but he is willing to carry out justice against all that is wrong. When scripture says this, it's also affirming that this is the fundamental role of government to punish sin. Says one theologian, what must not be lost sight of is that as unpleasant as is the task of the jailer and the use of the whip, the cell, the noose, the guillotine, these things stand behind the stability of civilized society and they stand there necessarily 
For God has declared it so in harmony with reality rather than with apostate sociological opinion. Government, with its coercive powers, is a social necessity, but one determined by the creator, not by the statistical tables of some university social research staff, end quote. So government restrains evil. It promotes good. And it even avenges evil. But even while it does that, we understand that the government does things like that, not fully, not ultimately, and not perfectly. There are imperfections within all governmental societies or all governmental authorities, rather, and all governmental entities because people are fallen. Governmental officials, even with this as their God-given role, and even if they are believers in Jesus Christ, will make imperfect decisions. They will not rule with absolute accuracy, full accuracy, as Christ in heaven will. So brothers and sisters, we need to be so careful that even while we affirm these things about government, we need to be so careful not to find our final hope and our final confidence in government. The government will not ultimately fix our problems because it is incapable of changing hearts. Only Jesus can fix our problems because only Jesus can transform our hearts. So what does government do? Government restrains. Government promotes good. Government serves as a temporal avenger. And then the last thing I want you to notice is in verse 6, another task of the government is to tax. The government taxes for the benefit of the people. You notice he says in verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So here's a truth that, Many of us chafe under and many of us don't favor and many of us don't like and many of us object to and all of us have an opinion about taxes and their role in our society. But notice explicitly what the apostle says. He says, you pay taxes. You must pay taxes. They are a divine right of governments to assign to us to pay because, notice the text, because they are servants of God and they are devoting themselves to this very task. In other words, they have been devoted to the task of governing and the taxes are there so that they can carry out the responsibilities that have been entrusted to them, not by us, but the the responsibilities that have been entrusted to them by God who is sovereign over them and who has entrusted this to them. They're devoted to this. It's their responsibility of life, and so it is also their responsibility to collect the taxes. We're going to talk about this more next time, but I want to emphasize here at least one truth, and that is the taxes are not for the selfish consumption of the rulers, but they are for the task of carrying out their duties to restrain evil, to promote good. As John Calvin has said, rulers should remember that all that they receive from the people is public property and not a means of satisfying lust and luxury.
So this morning, as we've come to Romans chapter 13, we have been reminded of the sovereignty of God over all nations, all governments, all governmental authorities, and all leaders. And we've also been reminded of some of the tasks, the primary tasks of governmental authorities. What should we think about this, and how should we respond to it? Well, we'll actually dig into that specifically from this text much more next time in two weeks. But for now, let me at least give you four Four implications of this text that might help you as you think about your relationship with the government. One is, be thankful. Be thankful. I know it's hard to think about thanking God for our governmental authorities. It is ingrained in us to be discontent about our governmental authorities. It's been that way since the institution of this nation. And yet, if God is sovereign over this Government, And if God is sovereign over every governmental authority that he has granted to us, then, brothers and sisters, we should be thankful for the ones that he has granted to us to lead us. They are not over us accidentally. They are over us by his particular, explicit, decreed purpose. And they are over us to accomplish his good work. That doesn't mean that everything will be easy under our governmental authorities. But it does mean that he has granted the authorities he has granted to us for his purposes, and we should thank him for them. Secondly, be involved. Be thankful. Be involved. As you have opportunity, speak to those who are in authority over you. Speak to party leaders. If it's voting season, speak to candidates. If it's not voting season, write letters, write emails, petition, call, even test, examine, and even at times confront. That's what John the Baptist did. Remember Matthew chapter 14, speaking to to Herod about stealing his brother's wife. He says, it is not lawful for you to have her. He condemned the one who is an authority over him. And as we have opportunity to speak about the unrighteousness and unlawfulness of our leaders, we must do so without fear. Also remembering that John the Baptist, though he was unafraid to speak boldly, did lose his life in the process. And we need to, we need to recognize the opportunity to speak. We need to recognize the obligation to speak, to speak appropriately, wisely, carefully, discreetly, um, kindly. But we must not be afraid to speak when the opportunity arises. And then do not be anxious. Be thankful. Be involved. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about your leaders. Do not be anxious about your governing authorities. Do not be anxious about the entities that are over top of you. Do not be anxious about the things that they are doing, the laws that they are making, the laws that they might be overturning. For they are God's leaders to accomplish his purposes at his time. And they are over you in this season for his explicit purposes, and they cannot overwhelm his purposes for you or for this nation. And then rest. You may not be satisfied from a human perspective about the decisions that are made by our rulers. You may not be satisfied with the governmental entities that are over you, but they've been appointed by God to accomplish his purposes for this time. Brothers and sisters, If God is satisfied with them, and if God is not anxious, and if God is resting contentedly 
while these governing rulers and authorities are over us, then we might rest as well. They're his servants. They're doing only what he desires them to do for us. And we can rest that his sovereign authority won't be overthrown. Father, we thank you this morning for the goodness of this word, for the goodness of this passage, for the goodness of your grace. And thank you for the government that you have put over us. In large part, it's been a beneficent and gracious and kind government to us. And we thank you. Would you make us to be more thankful? Would you keep us from anxiety? Would you cause us to rest not in the sovereign control and authority of the government, but would you cause us to rest and to be content in you as we live in this culture at this time? We commend ourselves to you, again, asking for gratitude, for freedom from anxiousness, and for rest and confidence in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Reminder as well, again, about the conference that's coming up next weekend with Rick Holland. If you haven't signed up for that, men yet, please do that as early as you can this week so that we can gather everything that we need for that. And now let me leave you with a benediction from Paul's letter to the Romans. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen, and God bless you all.